Writer Stephen Cole wrote this. You may have heard this, but he said during his, his time in the White House, President Carter did something that no other president that I know of, he says, has done. He says on several occasions he stayed in the homes of common Americans. He says, I don't know how he picked them, but he wanted to convey that he was in tune with the needs of average Americans. Where Stephen Cole asked this question. He says, if you received the call this week from the White House announcing that the president would like to stay in your home sometime next month, meaning that your living room and kitchen would be exposed on national television. Yep, I know what you're thinking. I predict that you would do some house cleaning, right? Your home would sparkle because you knew that the president was coming, right? Well, Stephen Cole said, well, someone, someone far greater than the president is coming. Paul calls him our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11 this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to give you a little background in an epistle called 1 Peter. Peter wrote this epistle in A.D. 64 to 65, Around a time when Emperor Nero burned down the city of Rome and blamed the Christians as his scapegoat. Well, Peter, in writing this epistle, wanted to encourage the believers to stand firm in their identity in Christ, even though suffering and persecution for their faith was escalating. Peter desired to teach the believers that even in the midst of suffering and duress, they can live victorious for Christ and still evangelize the world. So the main theme of 1 Peter is living victorious for Christ in the midst of suffering. And 1 Peter, as you know, contains many, many major doctrines, and here are just a few, I know you are familiar with most of them, that believers were chosen for salvation according to the foreknowledge of God and set apart by the Holy Spirit in eternity past, as 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us. Peter reminded them of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter wanted his believers like newborn babes to what? To long for the pure milk of the word. That's right. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 tells us. Peter reminded them that Christ died for our sins, that just for the unjust, as we just sang, so that he might, and think, listen to this, he might bring us to God. What a thought to meditate on, that Christ might bring us to God, as 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says. Peter told the believers not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Now, there is some, something very interesting to notice as you look through 1 Peter, starting with chapter 1. You will see that Peter used some critical doctrines in order to motivate the heart of the believers to live holy lives for Jesus Christ. For instance, he reminds them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 19, that they have been, what, redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, so watch your conduct. Also in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he reminds them of their conduct because unbelievers are watching. What a great source of evangelism as they watch you live your life for Christ. Well, this time at the very beginning of verse 7, Peter stresses the imminent return of Christ as their hope and motivation for them to live a certain way because Christ is indeed coming back. Amen? Our Lord is coming back one day. As we come to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
verses 7 to 11. Notice that sandwich in between the beginning of verse 7 and towards the end of verse 11, Peter provides five ways, five ways that we should live in light of Christ's imminent return. However, before we get to those verses in our outline, I'd like to use the first part of verse 7 as our introduction. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Does the imminent return of Christ provide a sense of urgency for you this morning? To think about what areas in your life that you need to strengthen or clean up as we talk about our Christian life. The thought of the return of Christ is like our children here and that Missy and I are coming home after a date. And guess what they are doing? That's right, they are frantically cleaning up the house to make it look nice before we get there, right? And as parents, we know, right? we know the deal, right? We know what's going on, right? In fact, we did that when we were kids too, right? We heard our parents were coming back, right? We quickly cleaned up the house. But Peter says that the imminent return of Christ should provide a sense of urgency. Why? Because like he says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. The word end there is from the Greek word telos, which normally speaks about a termination or a chronological conclusion to something. Now, Peter was not using the phrase end of all things to speak about the end of the persecution, as I mentioned earlier. Nor was Peter writing about the current reign of Nero's government coming to an abrupt end. But the phrase end of all things in this context this morning speaks about a fulfillment, a consummation, a purpose attained, or a goal achieved. One day our Lord Jesus Christ will return in the sky to rapture or to snatch his church, as First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 speaks about, and he will set up his kingdom, as Pastor Carlos preached last week from Psalm 110. You know, D. Edmund Hebert says this, the end that Telos is speaking about the consummation of the present course of history and implies not merely cessation of, but also the goal towards which the present age moves. It is the Christian's hope of Christ's soon return. In fact, the verb is near in verse 7 is, a, is from the Greek perfect tense, which means something planned in eternity past by the Trinity is approaching in time. It's near its end. It is pending. It is imminent. It is ready to break in. And as you already know, Peter was not the only biblical writer to write about Christ's soon return. The Apostle Paul again wrote to believers about the end return of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which says, one day we will what? Receive our resurrected bodies. Amen? We can't wait for that. The author of the epistle of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 25, speaks of us gathering together to continue to gather together as his return draws near. And the apostle John wrote in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, about our Lord's coming soon. Well, Peter also says that the imminent return of Christ should provide a sense of excitement for us all this morning, right? It should when we think about it. Our salvation, when you think about it, will be complete and we will be in heaven finally in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ. There will be no more physical pain. And as I was thinking about this, there will be no more bills to pay, right? No more rent, mortgages, right? Student loans. And I was thinking even there's no more, there will be no more 60 freeway and the 91 freeway, right? Right, right. for us to park our cars on, amen? Amen, hallelujah to that, right. Whereas we reluctantly come back down to earth, what are some ways? What are some ways that you can bring glory to God before Christ comes back. Well, five ways. Five ways we should live in light 
of Christ's imminent return. And the first way is this, to get serious about prayer. To get serious about prayer. And we will spend a lot of time with our first point here. But, but Peter says in verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. I think it's a question for you this morning is how is your prayer life going this morning? How can a serious prayer life be achieved before Christ comes back? Well, one way, Peter says, starts with your thought life. So Peter says, first of all, be of sound judgment. Be of sound judgment. The phrase be of sound judgment is from the Greek verb sophroneo, which deals with your mind or your thinking. It literally means to be in one's right state of mind. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this. It says, keep your heart or mind or your inner being with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. This is speaking about a believer who has trained his mind and has control of his thoughts and his, and his conduct in life, and he is not distracted by worldly lusts and worldly pursuits. He is balanced in his emotion and reactions. And he sees, he sees and handles all things from a biblical perspective, which will allow him to have a richer prayer life. John MacArthur says this, the basic idea of sound judgment is to keep your mind safe. Save your mind. Guard it. Protect it. Keep it clear. Focus. Fix it on spiritual priorities. Fix it on holy things. He says, to borrow Paul's statement to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, set your affections, or as NASB says, set your mind on what? On things above, not things down here on this earth. Now, it's interesting, the phrase, be of sound judgment, is the same word used in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, after Jesus healed a man who was demon-possessed. Remember that? His thinking was definitely off, right? Well, after Jesus healed him, Verse 15 says that the man was what? In his right mind. And in fact, in verse 20, it says that he began to evangelize for Christ, right? What a, a sign of someone who's truly saved, that they would truly evangelize for Jesus Christ. Well, one commentator offers some ways that you can train your mind so that you can have a sound mind that is grounded on personal holiness. The first way is to take every thought, what? Captive to the obedience of Christ, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse Chapter 10, verse 5 says, you know, it's been said, you'll either take sinful thoughts captive or what? Be taken captive by your sinful thoughts. And if you think about one bad sinful thought or action can affect your prayer life. In fact, Psalm chapter 66, verse 18 says this, if I regard iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord will not what? Will not hear me. He will not hear me. Make sure you're constantly repenting, confessing your sin to God so God can hear and will hear your prayers. Secondly, it's also been said that we listen to ourselves too much. Instead of talking, listening to ourselves, we should be speaking the truths of scriptures to ourselves, right? And I think when I think about myself, I think I talk to myself too much, right? I think, excuse me, I, say, I should say I listen to myself too much instead of talking my, uh, to myself regarding the truths of scriptures. For instance, turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Look what it says there. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse 6 says, for the mind set on the flesh is what? Is death. There's no relationship to God there. 
But the mind that is set on the Spirit is life, eternal life, and living according to God's Word and also peace. You are no longer an enemy of God, but you are at peace with God. The third thing he says, lastly, in order to have sound judgment, is to think daily about the attributes of Christ. Whenever fleshly thoughts enter your mind, think about God's attributes. Think about who he is. Think about God being holy, that he's loving, he's kind, he's merciful, he's just, he's loving. And also think about the gospel in your life and how that gospel has impacted your life. And how God has justified you because of the death of Jesus Christ. And because he's justified you, you should have no desire to sin again in your life. Well, a second command from Peter in order for a believer to be serious in their prayer life, as he says in verse 7 there, be of sound judgment and sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer is to have a sober spirit. To have a sober spirit. Now, Peter's focus here is that a Christian should be spiritually sober instead of spiritually intoxicated or drunk as it relates to prayer. Now, the phrase sober spirit is from the Greek word nepho. And it's closely related to sound judgment, but carries the idea of being steadfast, to be a discerning Christian who is alert, who is awake, who is clear-headed. In fact, sober is the same word Peter used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, that says believers should prepare their minds for action. As one commentator said, gird up the loins of your minds, which is the ancient practice of gathering up one's robe and needing to move in a hurry. Well, pastor, author, Nuthetic counselor Jay Adams in his book, The Christian Counselor's Commentary, said this, one must keep a clear head, think deeply, rightly understand and rationally apply the truths of God's word to a situation. Otherwise, if he follows his feelings or emotions, he will fail to follow God's word. Is that true? That is true. If we try to follow our flesh or emotions, we will not follow God's word. Well, why did Peter, why did Peter command and want the believers to be sound, have sound judgment and of a sober spirit? But look at verse 7. He says, for the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of prayer. Peter is telling us this morning that if we have sound judgment, and a sober spirit in relation to holy things, we will have a serious prayer life, which will help us to pray for ourselves and for others who are suffering and going through trials. Wayne Grudem said this, a believer must have sound judgment and a sober spirit in order to pray more effectively, more appropriately. Christians should be alert to the events and evaluate them correctly in order to be able to pray more intelligently. And how true that is. You know, shortly before facing the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where he often prayed with his disciples, had a similar mindset about prayer when he told his disciples to be serious and to be watchful, be alert when it comes to prayer. Remember? For instance, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, a few moments our Lord would face the cross where he would die for our sins. He would take on God's wrath to pay for our sins. In Mark chapter 14, verse 32, it says this, they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter 
And James and John began to be very distressed and troubled. He took Peter, James, and John. He was, they were part of his, his inner circle. They were the leaders of the disciples. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. First time he says to them, keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Jesus Christ wanted a cup of God's wrath for the payment of sin to pass him. Maybe there was another way that we could be saved. Maybe there was another way of salvation for us. Verse 36 says, And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Not what I will, but what? But what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? It's just one hour. Jesus asked them to stay awake. Be watchful. Be alert for one hour. But they fell asleep. You know, Jesus many times would use Peter's other name, Simon, whenever he was acting in the flesh. Whenever he was acting fleshly. Look at verse 38. says, he said, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. For the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Verse 39 says, And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, and their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. How many times did Jesus command his disciples to be watchful and alert during prayer. Three times. Three times, but they, but they fell asleep. Unfortunately, the disciples were indifferent to even the fact of what was happening to Christ. I mean, Christ shared with them that he was disturbed and distressed. Can you imagine the creator of the universe sharing with his creation, being transparent with his creation, what was happening inside his, his very soul? They were indifferent to Christ's need and they were indifferent to their need and the pending temptation that was coming. You see, they relied on their self-confidence and in their own strength to get them through trials. Don't do that. Make sure we rely on God and his strength as we face trials in our lives. One commentator said this, the disciples needed to learn that spiritual victory goes to those who are alert in prayer and depend on God. And that self-confidence and spiritual unpreparedness lead to spiritual disaster. And that's exactly what happened to his disciples. Listen to what Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance said about a believer having a powerful prayer life. Listen to these words. He says, The prayers of the saints and the fire of God move the whole course of the world. Isn't that amazing? They're the most potent, the most disturbing the most revolutionary, the most terrifying powers that the world knows. Would to God that we in the Christ church really understood the power of prayer like that. Wow. Your prayers are powerful. Continue to pray to God. Well, Peter, in our first point this morning, dealt with our thought life, which begins with having a sound, was having, having sound judgment and a sober spirit, which will allow us to have a serious prayer life that will glorify God. However, there's another crucial component that we must be practicing as we anticipate the return of Christ, which brings us to the second way Peter says you can bring glory to God in light of Christ's imminent return, and that is to keep loving one another. To keep loving one another. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, Above all, 
Keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Where Peter dealt with how a believer should be living with holiness on a personal level, now he addresses the way believers should live with each other in anticipation of Jesus Christ coming back. But notice in verses 9 to 11 that Peter mentions hospitality, speaking, gifts, serving gifts. However, notice there's one duty that Peter places first on the list that reigns supreme above all other duties as believers that we must participate in before Christ back, comes back, and that is to what? To love one another. To love one another. Do you remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 13, verse 35? Remember what he said? He said, by this, all men will know that you are what? My disciples, if you have love one for another. You know, the word love there is from the Greek word, as you know, agape, which is the highest form of love. It's sacrificial. It's unconditional, with no strings attached. It means that you are sacrificing. And also it means that, listen to this, that you are investing in someone else's life. But Peter adds the adverb fervent, which he used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, to describe the type of love that we as believers should have for one another. He speaks about a straining, a stretching, or being intense for your love for one another. But also finding someone who is at their lowest point in their life, the deepest point of their life, when all they need for you to do is to touch them, to encourage them, Remember years ago, AT&T used to have a, a phrase. Remember what it was? Reach out and what? Touch someone. That's what Peter is speaking about here. Reach out and touch someone to encourage them. You don't know how far that will take a person once you do that. Do you know anyone like that this morning? Maybe here at Cornerstone? Maybe somebody who needs you to come up to them, to touch them. But to put your arm around them, to love them, to encourage them. Well, as we think about someone sacrificing and investing in the life of another person, whenever we here at Cornerstone celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of God's unconditional, sacrificial, agape love, and, can I say, the spiritual investment in us, right? For instance, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Look what Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says. I know the children in Juana know these verses. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Look what it says there. For while we were still helpless, that's us, right, before we came to Christ. We were helpless. We were headed to hell. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Perfect plan in eternity passed from the Trinity. Before the world was created, the plan for salvation was already set in motion for us. Verse 7 says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the the good man, someone would even dare to die. But here it is in verse 8. But God demonstrates or shows his own agape love towards us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ, what? He died for us. Amen? We thank God for this tremendous sacrificial act. You see, this was the greatest act of fervent love God had in mind for you in eternity past. Even though he knew everything about your past, your present, and even your future sins. He knew it. But yet still he went to the cross to die for us. You see, God met you at your deepest level at the cross and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be sacrificed and to die for your sins. And now you are declared righteous by God. 
the, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. Wow. So now when God looks at you, he sees as if you've lived a righteous life your entire life. We just heard about God having fervent love for us by sending his son to die for us. Listen to how pastor and theologian Dr. Mark Jones in his excellent book called Knowing Christ depicts the tremendous fervent sacrificial love and distress that our Lord Jesus Christ had for you and me as he references Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Listen to these words. He says, This distress, his suffering and death, was an ever-present trial and one that greatly pressed down and burdened him well before his baptism or death on the cross. He said, surely the certainty of this distress could not escape him from the first time he read of his future sufferings in the Old Testament. He said, even criminals on death row hope for a last-minute pardon. But Jesus, a sinless one, knew, listen to this, his pardon would mean our destruction, which perhaps to him was an even more frightening thought than his own crucifixion. After all, what good husband would prefer his wife to die of face with a choice of dying himself in her place? If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, cry out to God to save you. Ask God to save you from your sins. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for yourselves, was buried, and that he rose again. You know, you must believe in a resurrection of Christ in order to be saved. You have to. You can't just have a head knowledge of Christ, knowing who he is. No, you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or maybe this morning as a believer, you may feel that God can't use you anymore. Maybe God has stopped investing in your life. What can I say this? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, For I am confident what of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. But why should believers live with a fervent love for one another? Well, look what the verse says in verse 8, because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this verse is quoted from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which says, Hatred stirs up disputes, but love covers all offenses. Now, on a high level, this verse is saying that if you are at home, at church, or at work, and someone is sinning against you, maybe they're being inconsiderate, irritating, that never happens to us, right? We never do that, right? This verse says to quickly forgive and to cover that sin with, with love. Commentators A.T. Robertson and Plummer further explains what this verse means as believers interact with each other. He says, Love is that beautiful virtue that throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. From this meaning, one derives a picture of covering things with a cloak of love. And that is, when you think about the basic essence of the gospel, isn't it? When you think about it, to remember where we've all come from that we too sinned against God, and that we need God. We needed God to forgive us of our sins. However, on a deeper level, this verse is saying that if someone commits a sin against you or another person and you are witnesses to that sin, we are not just to cover it and look away and don't confront the sin. No, we're supposed to do that. Yes, agape love covers, but also has a desire to keep private or to hide or remove from someone else's sight another person's sin as we seek to restore that person in love back to God and to promote unity in the church. D.M. in Hebrews says this, Christian love is not blind to sin, 
but interested in the genuine welfare of others. Genuine love always has compassion and consideration. It refuses to deliberately expose a sin. It prefers to refrain from and discourage all needless talk about them. Love acts to throw a veil over those sins like the conduct of Shem and Japheth and throwing a covering over their father's shame. Remember that Pastor Milton covered that in Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 and 23. In contrast to what Ham did, remember, he exposed his father's sin. J. Adams, again, says this about covering one another's sins. He says, covering sins means not allowing offenses to come between brothers. It does not mean ignoring them. God allows no grudges or resentment. One must cover sins in such a way that they never bother him anymore. If someone sins, if someone, some sin keeps throwing the covers off, you must confront the brother and bring the matter to a successful conclusion. God does not allow for unreconciled relationships, nor does covering sin means never offering help to another who is stuck in some trespass out of which he is not extricating himself, as Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 uh, chapter, uh, Galatians 6 1 says if somebody is stuck in a sin it is our job as mature believers to come and to help them out of that sin to restore them back to fellowship with God restoring the sinners to a right standing before God by investing in a person's life shows love and this brings glory to God so having a sound mind fervent in your love for one another are two ways to bring glory to God which leads us to the third way for us to live in light of Christ in return, and that is to keep showing hospitality to one another. Keep showing hospitality to one another. Now, Pastor Milton taught and preached this excellent sermon on hospitality a number of months ago, so I'll only, I'll only touch on a few items here. But verse 9 says, be hospitable to one another. The phrase of being hospitable actually in this context means the entertainment of strangers or understanding strangers, those you really don't know. And I think we have to be very careful today when we talk about entertaining strangers, use discernment there. But in fact, hospitality is another way that we can what? Show love to one another. Well, how critical was hospitality for the believers in the second century church? One commentator said this, whenever Christians were on journeys, it was undesirable to lodge in public inns. Why? Because brothels were the norm in these public inns. It was highly preferable to find lodging in Christian homes. For the, two, for the first 200 years, there were no separate church buildings. Each local congregation would have to meet in their homes. The practice would put their hospitality to the test. And I believe Pastor Milton covered this in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, which speaks about contributing to the needs of the saints by practicing hospitality, which at Cornerstone we do here in our care groups. Our care group leaders, they do provide a tremendous, tremendous job by loving the members of their care group, providing review of the sermon, prayer, and I think most importantly, food, right? I think food too, right? I think we, we, that's important. Can't skip that. But it's, so, it's amazing when you think about that. As you see care group members and even other leaders in that care group praying for each other, maybe in a corner, because someone is going through something very, very difficult. Why well, does Peter say that hospitality should be carried out? Look what he says in verse 9. He says, well, without grumbling. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Why does he say that? Was it possible that the believers were growing weary of being hospitable because of persecution and suffering? Probably. They were probably going weary of it. 
which is why Peter again uses the imminent return of Christ to encourage them to continue to be hospitable to one another. You know, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says that we are not to what? Become weary in doing what? In doing good for one another. However, like one commentator said, he said the practice of hospitality could become costly, burdensome, and can I say this word? Irritating. Irritating. And speaking of irritating, hold on to your seats for this example. And we should all remember this lesson about a little girl's prayer with her mother's invited guests before they ate. Now, just as a disclaimer, I'm not saying this happens to anyone here at Cornerstone. Just want to give you a disclaimer there, so please don't throw anything at me, okay? But here we go. It says, a wife invited some people over for dinner. At the table, she turned to her six-year-old daughter and said, would you like to say the blessing? The girl replied, I wouldn't know what to say. And the mother said, just say what you heard mommy say. The mother answered. The daughter bowed her head and said, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? <laughs> Let's quickly move on. Peter says, hospitality without complaint, right? Being a servant to another is of utmost importance before Christ returns, which leads us to our fourth point, which is keep serving one another. Keep serving one another. Look what he says in verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter's focus now shifts from showing love and hospitality to another person to lovingly serving one another before Christ's back. Using your spiritual gift, your unique spiritual gift that you have. Every believer has a unique spiritual gift that is different from each other. Your gift is different from my gift. My gift is different from your gift. Now, we don't have time to delve into a study of spiritual gifts, but there's a list. I can give you a list of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians 4, and here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 to 11. But in verse 10, Peter spoke about or used the word manifold, which literally speaks about a diversified or various types of gifts that God has graced you with. It's so amazing when you think about it. And I love what one commentator says as he describes the type of gifts you guys have that are different from each other. But it's amazing and it's unique just for you. He says each believer's spiritual giftedness is unique as if it were a spiritual snowflake or fingerprint. It's as if God dips his paintbrush into different colors of, or categories of gifts of his spiritual palette and paints each Christian a unique blend of colors. Not only does God grant spiritual gifts and arrange them in different ways, as Ephesians 4, 7 says, but he also gives believers the necessary faith to exercise your gift. So if you know what your spiritual gift is, God has given you the faith. He's given you faith to use your spiritual gift. So use your gifts. Use your spiritual gift. Whenever you are a steward or you employ your spiritual gifts in a local church by ushering, by greeting, maybe the AV team, and I know I'm going to miss someone here, children's ministries, men's and women's ministries, administration, elders, IT department, catering, drama, and worship team, and everyone else who serves, so I'm, I'm kind of covered there. Peter says you are being a good steward. You are benefiting the church until Jesus Christ comes back. Now, on the flip side of the coin, this means that whenever you as a member or regular tender do not attend Cornerstone, you are depriving your local church 
a spiritual gift, listen, that may be needed to benefit a brother or sister on any given Lord's Day. Your spiritual gift is that critical in the local church. One commentator said this, not using one spiritual gift weakens the local church. When you're not here, the church is weakened because others cannot replace the unique giftedness of those who are not ministering. We can't replace your gift if you're not here. And we should use as our greatest example who our Lord Jesus Christ, right? In Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The verse says what? That our Lord Jesus Christ what, didn't, didn't come to what? To be served, but to what? To serve and give his life a ransom for many. The King of kings and the Lord of lords served his creation and selfless service to others. Peter then explains what some of the spiritual gifts are. He breaks them down into different categories. If you see there in verse 11, whoever speaks is do so as one who's speaking. So we're looking at gifts that, that are, are related to speaking. The person who has a speaking gift is to minister and effectively teach and preach the word of God. It says there, with wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. And he has to teach and preach all of God's revealed 66 books in the Bible. Nothing more. Not anything more. And not add taken anything away. Also in verse 11, he speaks about his serving gift. And again, the focus here is on the giftedness of serving each other. And I guess the question for us this morning is, are we being a good steward of the spiritual gift that God has given to us here at Cornerstone? And if you remember, Pastor... One of Pastor Milton's sermon, I don't remember, I think it was a year ago, he mentioned about, spoke about the beam of seat of Christ. Remember, where every believer will appear before God, stand before God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. And we'll all give account on how we, were, how we use the gift that God has given to us in the local church. And I remember Pastor Milton, he asked us a question, kind of a, a dagger and a heart type question. He says this, what have you done with Jesus in your life? Remember that? Wow. Verse 11 continues on, and Peter says, as you use your gifts, as you speak, as you serve, you're not to do it in your own strength, but in whose strength? By the strength that God supplies. When we serve, when we minister, when we speak, we are to rely on God's strength as we serve in a local church. When we are teaching and preaching and serving one another, as we expect the Lord Jesus Christ to come, we are glorifying God, which leads us to our last point, our fifth point there, and is to make it your aim to glorify God. Make it your aim to glorify God. Verse 11 says, so that in all things God may be what glorified through Jesus Christ. Well, Peter says the purpose or reason that we are doing all things mentioned in the previous verses is to glorify God through Jesus Christ, who is due all the glory and honor forever and ever. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whether then, so then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what? For the glory of God. It's for his glory that we do this, not for ours. We want Jesus Christ and his name to be exalted. We want God to be exalted. Not only here in the local church, but outside as we live our Christian lives. And every believer can truly glorify God in their lives because they've been reconciled. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You're not an enemy of God, but now you are God's friend and you can minister for him. 
Well, Peter here, the last part of verse 11, he was moved in his heart of gratefulness to God by wrapping up this section, by providing worship to God with a well-known doxology there and declaring what God deserves. He says that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, Romans chapter 16, verse 27 says something very similar. And it says, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Again, glory going to God. Jude 25 Verse 25 says this, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ the Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Five ways. Five ways that we can glorify God in light of Christ's imminent return. Get serious about prayer. Keep loving one another. Keep showing hospitality to one another. Keep serving one another. And make it your aim to glorify God in all that you do. J.C. Rowan, his book, Holiness, provides some observations on holy living despite persecution or trials or suffering from the world. And he says this, a holy man will follow after spiritual mindedness. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on the earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of the life that is now, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come living in heaven, thinking about Christ coming back. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is traveling to his home, or so I say, to his future home. And our Lord Jesus Christ will come and take us home very soon. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. Thank you, Father, for the passage in First Peter as a reminder for us that our Lord Jesus Christ truly is coming back and that Father, whatever we say and whatever we do, help us, Father, to make sure we are giving you all the glory and credit that is due to you. And I pray for us here at Cornerstone that we will use our spiritual gifts to our full ability. And that, Father, we will love and that we, sh- we will show hospitality. That, Father, we will have sound mind and, and sound judgment in, in, re- in regards to prayer. And we pray, Father, again, that as we anticipate the return of Christ, that we will continue to love our fellow believers, as Jesus Christ said, that the world will know that we are your disciples because we have love for one another. And Father, we pray now for our offering. We just pray this offering will be used to further the ministry, not only here in Riverside, but also in the surrounding areas. We love you. You are a great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.